Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> Venom. If you're going to stay, you will only hurt bad people. The way I see it, we can do whatever we want. Do we have a deal? What the hell are you? We are Venom. <gasps> This episode was originally a quick review recorded at the time of the movie's release and put out on Patreon, and I was fairly scathing and incredulous. This was prior to the roaring box office success that Venom enjoyed, and before Sharon and Lyra had seen it. So the first 50 minutes or so that you're about to hear is the quick review with some minor edits, followed by a further 35 minutes of our reassessment after the Blu-ray release. Some of my views change, some stay the same. Either way, it's a very fun show. Enjoy. Okay, Venom, the film that they couldn't not make. I'll give you a quick synopsis first of the whole movie. It probably won't take long. There's a uh, shuttle crashing at the beginning. It's been to outer space. It found an asteroid and the life forms on the asteroids coming back to Earth. Symbiote's on board, crashes, and um, the EMTs who pick up the one surviving astronaut, uh, the, the, the astronaut sort of explodes inside the ambulance with a load of like black goo, and um, one EMT walks out and then walks off to a bazaar where she eats an eel and then chops a dude's head off because he says, don't eat my eel, and then she kills everyone in the bazaar. It's in Malaysia. And then she walks over to this old lady and sort of... Fallen. You remember in Fallen when uh, Azazel just passes to another body? It's that concept with uh, with this thing. And so the old lady wanders off with the crazy eyes and the EMT sort of falls down, uh, no longer being used, effectively being used as a host. This is very much a tell-don't-show movie because we immediately meet Eddie Brock and he's doing some reporting and he's like a... You know, he's a hard-hitting reporter. He reports on the homeless and the, the wastrels of the streets of San Francisco. And uh, we can tell from this that he's he appears to actually care about the uh, the undervalued and isn't just exploiting them to get uh, ratings. And I was like, right, okay, so the best thing to do here is to sh- sort of throw Eddie into a situation where his ethics are compromised and he has to decide to do the right thing so that we know we have to s- stick with this guy or do the wrong thing and regret it. But instead, his boss tells him, Eddie, you just you just keep asking people these awkward questions. Whatever you do, don't do that when you uh, talk to Colton Drake tonight, the extremely uh, rich billionaire who's uh, doing crazy experiments in his... Uh, secret lab and eddie goes and you kind of have to sort of like run with it when tom hardy speaks because he has a different voice in every film and this time i'm eddie brock i'm a reporter i always seem to find myself questioning something the government may not be looking at i found something really bad and I have been who's that bad? bad taken
Eddie are going to be taken. He goes and talks to Colton Drake, and you know that? We, we watched a video the other day of uh, Christian Guru Murphy interviewing Robert Downey Jr., and he says, so, uh, like, they're supposed to be talking about Age of Ultron, and Christian Guru Murphy, who is a professional reporter and has been for decades, says so, like, sort of leads questions towards, towards uh, Robert's shady past, and Robert's kind of like, mm-hmm, okay, yeah, okay, move on from this, I don't quite know what you're doing here, and he gives him, like, six different opportunities to back off, and eventually just like, right, okay, we're done here, and Christian Guru Murphy squirms in his seat as his producer shakes his head in a kind of you plonker way. I'm actually going to take a little time out from Venom here to play a big chunk of this RDJ interview for you now. It's a fascinating example of how an experienced reporter who should know better is pushing for a scoop and not considering the reaction he's likely to get. Now, I'm in no way comparing Downey to the fictional character of Carlton Drake here. For one thing, RDJ has a second, third, and maybe even a fourth dimension. But this is kind of how Eddie Brock comes off in the movie. Only he's less aware of what a career-ender he's committing to. Could you explain the idea behind Ultron? I mean, what, what is the real fear here? Uh, in Tony's mind, A, it's if you... The idea behind a team like this is for the team to retire because the odds are that one or all of them are going to get bumped pretty soon. So his idea is pretty altruistic. He's thinking, how can I put us out of business and still have a big bouncer at the door of our, our uh, vulnerable little planet? And, and that's why he does what everybody fears, which is unleash this, this monster. Right. Well, clearly he doesn't do it to unleash a monster. It, it's co-opted. Um, there's a couple points in the script that I, I think is the reason that Age of Ultron is actually a, a worthy companion to Avengers and in some ways a better film in that it takes the conventions and it twists and retwists them in a way that's kind of clever. Just as an audience member, I'm like, oh, that's really cool. I appreciate the kind of complexity of it. And, and um, what do you think of the obvious parallels being made between you and Iron Man? Um, at this point, it's natural, but I, you know, if you'd asked me in the first Iron Man, I'd be like, that's me. And now I'm realizing, I've realized that, uh, well, it's, of course it's not, you know. Um, I'm not saying that I'm, I'm such a fantasist that I felt like I was Tony Stark, but I felt like it was my persona. But none of us are our personas. But he's becoming a much more likable character as well, isn't he? I suppose A better so. man. Yeah, he's becoming a better guy. Uh, you know, in a way that you are as well, I suppose. Uh, sure. <laughs> I mean, what I'd really like to—I'd really like to ask you about a quote you gave to the New York Times, um, and I don't, I don't want to pry, so if you don't want to talk about it, that's fine. But w- what you said to the New York Times once was—it was about—it was, about, was after your incarceration, and you said you can't go from a two thousand dollar a night hotel suite to a penitentiary and understand it and come out a liberal. And I just wondered what you meant by that. Well, the funny thing is, and, and I appreciate your, your point of view, things that you said five, seven years ago or things you said in an interview that made sense to you at the time, I could pick that, I could pick that apart for two hours and be, clo- be no closer to the truth than I'd be giving you some half-assed answer right now. Um, I, I couldn't even really tell you what a liberal is. So therein lies the answer to your question. <laughs> The, the statement sort of stands by itself, doesn't it? I mean, d- does that mean you're, you're not a liberal or that you came out of prison not being a liberal? Um, are we promoting a movie? To me, the thing is that it's, 
I'm certainly not going to backpedal on anything I've said, but I would I wouldn't say actually I wouldn't say I'm a Republican or a liberal or a Democrat. I think when I was talking to the person who was doing the interview that day, and um, and that just happened to be my opinion. That's the nice thing is you can have opinions and they kind of change and flow. Yeah, well that's that that's life and that's growing older, I suppose, isn't it? Yeah. I mean. You, you say we're promoting an interview, I mean, uh, promoting the movie. I mean, obviously you're doing a promotional round of interviews and that's why we're talking about the movie. But we also would like to talk a little <laughs> bit about you. And I don't know how, how comfortable you are, you know, talking, talking about yourself at the moment. You I mean, have as much time as anyone else will. Yeah, well, OK, well, then let me just ask you a few more questions and you can answer them if you want to and not if you don't want to. I mean, um, well, I think we've got two, three more minutes on our... On our, on our agreement. Your foot's I mean, starting to jump a little bit. You better get to your next question. You, um, the reason I'm asking about the past is that you, you've talked in other interviews again about um, your relationship with your father and the role of all of that in, uh, you know, the dark periods you entered and, and taking drugs and drinking and all of that. And I just wondered whether you know, you, you, you think you're free of all of that? Or whether that's still something... I'm sorry, you... I, I really don't... Uh, uh, what are we doing? Uh, uh, well, I'm just asking questions, that's all. Right. Okay, that's okay. Bye. Thank you, guys. Are you... Oh, I'm sorry, I... <laughs> it's okay. Yeah, you're right. Thank you. Yeah. Do you... You seem okay, it's just getting a little dinosaur in your... No, 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 look, I don't want to do that. <laughs> Thank you. Anyway, uh, Eddie backs... Colton Drake into a corner and he's like, so what are these experiments you're doing on hobos? And he goes, we're done here. Doesn't give him those six steps. And then says, enjoy the rest of your life, Eddie. And then he gets fired. And then uh, Eddie's fiance, uh, played by Michelle Williams, who, uh, as with Tom Hardy, is way above this material, uh, gets fired because she works for a firm that works for Colton Drake's evil secret organization. So she splits up with him, cut to six months later. Although we're talking Dark Knight Rises levels of time compression here. Six months is very important for some parts of the story, and kind of, let's forget about the whole six months thing for other parts of the story. Colton Drake is getting, like, symbiotes in, and he's been sort of, like, putting hobos into the room with symbiotes, the ones that were found on the uh, spacecraft, and the, the, the symbiotes just keep eating the hobos. So he, he just he wants to find a hobo that will, that will fuse with a symbiote, you know, properly, and that the symbiote will be happy in. Uh, and Eddie Brock's been living kind of a, a miserable life, just on the breadline. Um, you know, he's a failed, you know, no longer a reporter. He is friends with Melora Walters. Do you remember her from Paul Thomas Anderson films, Boogie Nights, Magnolia? She's fantastic. She plays a hobo, and one that he's friendly with. She overcharges him for a newspaper... Uh, and he gives her more money because he's just trying to sort of, sort of help her out. So we know that Eddie is a good guy. I, I never actually felt in this whole film, fuck you, Eddie, you're a bad guy. That's to its credit. It just it seems like Eddie genuinely does care about people. His issue isn't being a bad guy or not caring. It's that he's a mess. However, unbeknownst to Eddie, Melora Walters ends up in these experiments. Uh, he goes into a Chinese herbalist slash chemist's place and, and the place gets robbed and Eddie hides behind a shelf because he is uh, afraid to do anything at this point and he's listening to yoga tapes that are uh, that, that say you know 
any action is better than inaction. Uh, and uh, it would be, appear like this is Eddie's problem. Possibly because of what he did before, he now is afraid to move in any way. And, well, he's a coward, effectively, at this point. And I thought, well, that's a that's a thing you could do with a, a, a hero. Make make it all about that when he meets the symbiote, that the symbiote makes him do things. And so he kind of has no option on it. Well, it, it sounds as though the essence of... of the theme here is the combination of the survival instincts and impulses that the animalistic uh, symbiote brings to the table mm-hmm. can enhance somebody who has a moral centre but has lost connection with their animal side, the part of them that acts in their own defence. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, uh, Eddie has stopped moving, and uh, through the events of this movie, he begins to move mm. again. Okay, yeah. um, but even his actions prior to that were kind of not leaning towards his own best interests. No, no, they, they appeared to be inflammatory, but not necessarily forward-thinking. We cannot just hurt people. So like I said, it was six months later. The creepy old lady turns up at the airport and then jumps into a little girl. So we are to infer from this that that other symbiote has spent six months in Malaysia living as a little old lady. And I was thinking, there's a whole Pixar movie in that. Where it's like, you know, his uh, his interactions with the, the little old lady's neighbours, the symbiote begins to feel, begins to become a person. But you realise quickly that it may as well have been half a day's past to the scriptwriters. It just literally goes, she was here, now she's here, now she's a little girl, and then the little girl jumps into the bad guy at the end. Mm. <clears throat> Not literally, that would be hideous. Yeah. I've got visions now of the symbiote and the little old lady getting away with all kinds of shit because people are like, oh, well, she's old. Yeah. I'm 82. So like, she can push her head in, in cues. So Eddie uh, gets uh, let in by a, a scientist in the back door to expose this uh, Carlton Drake fellow who's kind of like, if you look at him, he's a combination of Elon Musk and Lex Luthor from Batman v Superman. As in, he keeps philosophizing about how the human race has buggered its planet up and it's un- uninhabitable. Or it's, you know, we're, we're getting to the end. He wants to save the world. And I thought, that is again... A fairly interesting villain. Very much like Thanos. Only I haven't seen any Colton Drake was right videos. Like, I want to save the world. I'm a great man. Look at what I'm doing here. And he's quite softly spoken. He believes he's righteous, which makes sense. I'm not quite sure what putting symbiotes into hobos achieves in this particular regard. I think he, he, he mentions that the human body is badly designed, so I'm assuming he wants to build a better human. Look around at the world What do you see? A planet on the brink of collapse. Human beings are disposable. But man and symbiote combined. This is a new race, a new species. A higher life form. I suppose if his motivation is wanting to encourage people to save the world, to impregnate everybody with more of a sense of self-preservation might actually achieve that, where so far the arguments have not. He doesn't have a baseline, this worked, and this is what we want to aim for. It just seems to be very theoretical. These parasites are eating people. We want to keep doing that. (laughs) 
I'm not sure where the long-term gain is in this, but okay. So Eddie gets in, finds Melora Walters. She's, you know, he smashes down the door to try and let her out. She jumps on him and goes, ah, and then black goo comes out of her and goes into his ear. And then he goes back to his uh, uh, flat. He's like, oh, God, what's going on? Oh, no, oh, no, I've got a thing in me or something. I don't know. I'm mad with infected in there. He also jumps over a fence, runs through a forest, um, gets away from some dudes, climbs up a tree. And then the voice starts talking to him. He's like, what? There's, there's voices in my head. He eats a bunch of frozen tater tots. Very easily, I might add. Those are going to be crunchy. And uh, then eats chicken out of the garbage and then throws up. And it's just, at this point, I was like, this is one of the ugliest comic adaptations I've seen in a long while. And you've seen Spawn. I have. You know what? Quite a bit of Spawn in this. I mean, Todd McFarlane created Venom, so there is a literal heritage there. Indeed. You can see it in the promotional material. Now, don't get me wrong here. I don't mean that Venom is ugly inside. Again, to its credit. It's one of those films where they give you nothing appealing to look at, where everything you see is going to be objectionable, which is, is hard. It's hard to sit through something like that. I mean, there are reasons to watch things like The Road, but there are reasons why people only ever watch The Road once. So Venom starts talking to him and says, I'm going to help you get out of these binds. And then the dudes come to arrest him and take him back to the place so that he can, they can extract the symbiote from him, even though he has bonded well with it. Uh, and uh, Venom kicks the shit out of them. He's like, oh my God, what's going on? And at this point, I was like, well, yes, as, as I think Chipman mentioned, this is literally a film which came out earlier this year, um, Upgrade, which I did a quick review on a few weeks ago. Uh, where, you know, you've got this thing in you that will, uh, you know, help you be superhuman. Uh, it's a lot less, a lot less intense than Upgrade. <laughs> it's less intense than its own trailer, all that bang, clang stuff. It's less oppressive than that to watch. What do you want from me? You'll find out. I'm so sorry. exhausting and that's probably a good thing because this is uh it's a 15 in the uk i believe it's a, F- a pg-13 in america they said fuck once there's not a spot of blood in the whole film so yeah pg-13 that is not what upgrade is but the venom voice is very deep and i realized after a while that i, I worked out what it sounded like uh, dr claw from inspector gadget <laughs> like, are we getting well kid here I'll get you next time, Spider-Man. In ten minutes, man will be in possession of plans to stay ahead of the police force for a full year. And Inspector Gadget will make the world safe for crime. You know, he's chatting away, but I thought... that Clearly, it's Tom Hardy doing the Venom voice. There'd be no reason getting someone else on when Tom Hardy's so great with voices, and ultimately it makes sense for him to embody both. Uh, but the Venom voice is so flat... Because it's just... Like that. There's very little nuance to it. And the most humorous moments of this are when Eddie is arguing with Venom inside his head. And I thought, with a good script, going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, that potentially, if Kevin Feige had been in charge, this might have been 
diverting, amusing. It might have had some great set pieces that weren't action set pieces, but were in fact character set pieces. Mm. Because that's the thing, everyone criticises Marvel's action, uh, but what Marvel has in spades above every other action movie is character. Yeah, I'm thinking like Deadpool arguing with his interior voices. Yeah. Would be similar to and beyond just being funny, you can actually make something that's faintly profound. My idea was to have this film be directed by Edgar Wright, starring Simon Pegg, with Nick Frost as Venom, and much like the Cornetto trilogy, make it a portrait of a modern man who has extreme difficulty changing his habits. Have you ever fired your gun up in the air and gone, ah? No, I have not ever fired my gun up in the air and gone, ah. My point is we should be expecting more from these movies beyond character introduction. Not even that, premise introduction. Tom Hardy is actually funny. He was funny in uh, uh, Inception um, and all the others. <laughs> he has his moments in Mad Max. Yeah, he's, he's quite dry. But, yeah. uh, but like, I, I've no doubt that he could do it, effectively arguing with himself, much like Seth MacFarlane in uh, um, Family Guy as Brian and Stewie. <laughs> Hurry up, we still have to swing by Wyndham's before they close. Relax, I'm almost done. Why do you have a safety deposit box anyway? What's in there that you can't bury in the yard? I have things. You have a dead bird in there? What are you going to do with that? I was going to take it home, show it to Lois, make her proud of me. When it got to this point, I was like, oh shit. In terms of structure in the movie, what does Eddie want? What's Eddie's goal? And I realised that they're so intent on getting Eddie together with the symbiote in the film that the plot is, is, everything is about getting to that point. Mm. Like, we've got to get you there. And then we have to have a second half of Act 2 and an Act 3 just so that you can stay at this place and, and we can see some stuff that Venom can do. And that's what it is. Eddie doesn't really want anything and he doesn't really get anything. He, you know, he starts to move. But... Because he starts to move the moment Venom's in him, it's there's nothing he's aiming for. I mean, he wants his girlfriend back, who's now with another guy, who's a decent guy, by the way. Um, and he's a, a, a doctor, and they inspect Eddie, and, get, and it's like, oh, you have a parasite. And, you know, no shit. Uh, they, they work out Venom's weaknesses. But again, it's very expositionary. Everything is in service to getting Eddie to that point, and everything is in service to explaining the people and the world. They so rarely stop to just... Let the characters out and let people play. Um, immediately after this section with the security guards, there's a very, very long motorbike chase, which is clearly supposed to be the uh, centerpiece of the film. And I was, my eyes were glued to the screen, not because it was great to watch, it was just visual noise. But I was like, Maya Santandria, friend of the show, Hollywood actress, is in this stunt sequence. Where is she? And I couldn't see her, and it pissed me off. Uh, but the, the sequence is. Utterly forgettable. Oh, and Maya told me later that she wasn't in the motorbike scene. She was in the scene near the end where a bunch of scientists are trying to launch a rocket and Carlton Drake slash Riot just murders them all in one sweep. They're trying to launch his rocket. Uh, Then um, Lex Luthor, Elon Musk, finally meets this little girl who walks straight into his lab and uh, then the symbiote, the evil symbiote, jumps into him and he goes, right. And we don't, I don't, I, I may have slept through the bits where he has some internal monologue, but then immediately we're sort of, we're, we're on the, the, the fast track to, he's going to get into a rocket and fly off into space to go and get the space symbiotes to come back to Earth 
uh, to take over the whole world. The same thing we do every night, Pinky. Try to take over the world. Because that's what this parasite wants. He wants to take over the world with parasites. And that's technically also what this uh, Lex Luthor wants. He wants to, to, to bring parasites to people. Phase three is profit. Phase three is profit. Again, the potential here for this villain, internal monologue with the thing in his head... That's potentially more interesting than Eddie and Venom in terms of this is what I want and can see for the world. And then this symbiote lying to him and then him kind of following along with it. Like, get this done way earlier in the film and you've got a villain who I'm doing the best I can. And then by the end, he realizes like Doc Ock in Spider-Man 2, I fucked this whole thing up, didn't I? Better not die the villain better fight against this thing but no what he ends up turning into is a big gray villain i don't know if you've uh, seen uh, films like iron man and incredible hulk but they tend to just have like a big hulking version of the hero so iron monger was like a big gray version of iron man uh, abomination was like a big beigey version but kind of grayish of incredible hulk crimson dynamo slash whiplash in iron man 2 big gray has whips his name is crimson Dynamo. Uh, the Destroyer in Thor, just big grey Asgardian uh, armoured warrior. Silver Samurai in uh, The Wolverine. Doctor Doom in that recent fanforstic film. He had no philosophy, no way to engage Reed Richards, his hated enemy. He was just a big grey dude who fired lasers out of his eyes. Doomsday in Batman v Superman. Ares in uh, Wonder Woman. The moment that Ares turns into a big grey villain, they stop having the philosophical debate and it's just like, you've got to deal with this big grey thing. And of course, Steppenwolf, the ultimate big grey nothing of a villain. I was like, oh, it's, it's fine. It's just a crappy big grey villain for Venom to fight. And that's precisely what happens. Venom goes to the rocket to fight him and they have a big symbiote fight. And I was <laughs> like, I was nodding off. It was so boring to watch this fight of, of no ideals, of just like, I want to bring the symbiotes back here and Venom kind of likes this world, so I don't want that to happen. That's the sole motivation going back and forth. And it's good guy v bad guy. And this effectively stems from uh, Hollywood's mediocre rendition of a recurring trope in comic books uh, whereby the shadow of the hero is effectively a big, angry, brutal version of the hero, as in Sabretooth is Wolverine if he didn't hold himself in check, if he didn't have that humanity. Red Skull is Captain America if he were a Nazi obsessed with Teutonic order. More specifically, the super soldier who really commits to the idea that he is superior to other people. You know, the Flash's opposite is the reverse Flash, who I'm assuming can run backwards really fast. But he's a man who uses his speed powers for evil. It's very simple comic book stuff, but it's elemental and it's effective. It shows you, but for his strength of character, there goes the hero. The problem is... Venom is the big black version of Spider-Man. You seem to have failed to work out that he's already that. What he needed was to fight this nippy little blue and red guy who turns up at the end and leads him a merry dance. Well, yeah, like Venom wants, you know, is very, very selfish. And then when he fights Peter Parker, there's a battle of ideologies. And eventually Peter kind of wins him over. And he's like, you know what? I will protect people, but I'm not going to do it your way, Peter Parker. Uh, the other films that this reminded me of, uh, Deadpool, a little tiny bit um, in, in terms of they're using vagrants to do experiments on and turn them into super soldiers. 
kind of. I don't know. It's always super soldiers or something. They never say super soldiers, but like better people. So that's the only real link. They want it to be Deadpool because it's like, they're like, you know, there's enough heroes in the world. That was a trailer tagline. Like, you know, if you're sick, if you, like everyone else in this world, are sick to death of Marvel films with brightly colored heroes, all goody two-shoes, here's a bad guy. Uh, Why is he bad? Because he like eats people. Shit, he sounds like a werewolf or a Jason Voorhees cannibal. Who does he eat? Um, private armies hired to apprehend Eddie Brock. Uh, robbers. Okay. The Mummy, it reminded me of as well. That's the 2017 The Tom Cruise. And it's in terms of like, oh my God, there's a thing and it crashed with a plane crash and then the thing's getting out and then the guy's going, there's something in me and I'm not sure what it is. And it's very, very dark and colorless. And there's a lot of running about and it kind of resu- and it results in nothing. It's very much like the new version of The Mummy. Uh, it's like a little show of horrors in one regard. Imagine Audrey 2 was in Seymour's head and all of those arguments about, look, I got an idea. I'm gonna go down to Spendrick's and pick you up some nice chopped sirloin. Must be blood, Seymour. Tui, that's disgusting. Must be fresh. I don't wanna hear this. Feed me. Because Venom doesn't wanna eat just roast chicken. He wants to eat a chicken. And again, that could have been great. Like, you know, what am I supposed to do? Slip my wrists? <sighs> like, just like the comedy of Eddie going back and forth with Venom could have been great like that. Squandered but potentially there. And the other one that it reminded me of, weirdly, that superhero film where the hero is just sort of a nobody who gets laid off by the villainous billionaire um, corporation owner, and then they're doing doing bad things and trying to turn themselves into something perfect, and then the person who was kind of a nobody then becomes somehow super-powered and then kind of comes out of their shell. And there's a whole boring sequence in the middle where the person fights off a load of cops or security guards... And there's a big crappy chase. And then ends up going to back to fight the evil billionaire, Catwoman. Okay, boys. Show of hands. Who can see in the dark? I can. We can see in the dark too, Catwoman. Which is another movie where during the action scenes, the hero turns into, and this is what We Hate Movies said, a jib-jab. Kids, you might need to ask your grandparents about jib-jab. Yeah. Total jib jab. Chip jabs, Eddie. Uh, well, I'm yeah. Still sending a chip jab at Christmas, Eddie. <laughs> it is you and me and Spider Man, but we're dancing around like elves. Man, it's I'm tired adorable. of that. I'm so tired. Huh, that of shit's that. so old, right? Like it like started like Bush v Gore. It did, it dude. I did. saw commercial for Jib Jabs. Fuck the other day. you! A real honest no. to commercial. How on say? earth are they affording a commercial? What it say? Wait, uh, wait, wait, are they even charging money for this stuff? I, I don't know. I, it's just like, that's, go- it's for Jib Jab Premium, dude. It's where those cutouts <laughs> oh, are really cool, shit, dude. It's- where they're going at it like fucking hogs. <laughs> Yeah, the fuck jabs. <laughs> oh, do you fuck jabs? The different situation. Yeah, yeah, that's nine ninety five a month. Can't jab, be talking about jab that, hub. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and oh my god, there's also a scene in Catwoman where she's in a fancy restaurant full of fish tanks, shoving raw seafood into her gob. Probably a comparison they didn't want. But it feels very like Catwoman. There's even a bit in Catwoman where, much like in Venom, there's a noisy neighbor. And the new cat powers slash venom are the things that help patients and impatients here deal with the noisy neighbor. You hear that? It's called silence. That's all I ever wanted. Now keep it down. Thanks for the party. 
This is directed by Ruben Fleischer of Zombieland. Remember that film? That really great film. And 30 Minutes or Less, that horrible film. And Gangster Squad, which I haven't seen, but very few people say is great. And I'm looking forward to Zombieland 2. But if he's still off the boil like he is right now, it won't be great. Uh, it was uh, written by a writing team of Scott Rosenberg, who wrote Con Air, which I kind of like the script of that, even though it is dumb. Gone in 60 Seconds, did not like that. High Fidelity, he adapted the Nick Hornby book. Again, that's got a great script. Jumanji 2, that's a fun film. I don't know how this film came from the same guy. And Jeff Pinkner co-wrote, as one of the many writers, on Amazing Spider-Man 2. So my guess is R.V. Arad took him under his wing and said, no, it's fine, I'll help you get to write the Venom movie. And that's how he talks. She wrinkled her brow as though Avi Arad doesn't talk like that. Avi Arad has a boner for Venom, by the way. He forced Sam Raimi to shove Venom into uh, Spider-Man 3. Arad was very much present during the 1996 Marvel bankruptcy when they ended up co-controlled by Toy Biz, the uh, action figure makers who'd been uh, making out like bandits with uh, X-Men Spider-Man and actually keeping Marvel really pretty prominent in the 90s. So I don't want to downplay his importance in preventing them from going over the edge. He also presided over the first proper wave of Marvel films. So if we're going to forget about the Roger Corman Fantastic Four and the Generation X TV pilot... And Howard the Duck. Uh, he produced Blade. He produced X-Men, Blade 2, the original Sam Raimi Spider-Man, Daredevil X2, Hulk... The Punisher, Spider-Man 2, Blade Trinity, Elektra, Fantastic Four, X-Men The Last Stand, Ghost Rider, Spider-Man 3, Rise of the Silver Surfer. So he was a major figure during that era when they were just kind of finding their feet. And, you know, sometimes they did something incredible like Sam Raimi's Spider-Man. And a lot of the time it was just mediocre crap. Venom feels like it could have been made in 2004 right about the same time as Blade Trinity and Elektra. Arad was part of Iron Man and the Incredible Hulk, but didn't really contribute towards the MCU as we know it. He still carried on with things like Ghost Rider, The Spirit of Vengeance, The Amazing Spider-Man, Amazing Spider-Man 2. He did exec produce Spider-Man Homecoming because anything that has something to do with Spider-Man, he's pretty much got to be something to do with it. And Venom and Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. But considering his old buddy Ike Perlmutter was the guy who blocked female-led Marvel movies, like Black Widow and Captain Marvel for the longest time, so you can thank him for that, and had really unsavory tastes. And he's now out. But RVR ad remains. For how long we don't know. Uh, Jeff Pinkner also wrote many episodes of Lost and Fringe. And also co-wrote Jumanji 2. I don't get it. I don't get how so many good things can exist in the back catalogue of these creators. And then it kind of amounts in this lukewarm, greyish-black thing. That power, it's not completely awful. You have no idea how much you're scaring me right now. Eddie, cooperate. You just might survive. Guys, you do not want to do this, trust me. And at the very end of the film, after he's stopped the rocket from taking off, because, oh, amazingly, he beats the villain using fire, which we were carefully told several times by people. Like, I think Venom himself says, Oh, my other weakness is fire. <laughs> 
Oh, it's all exposition. Um, he goes back to the sort of the Chinese uh, chemists and, and, and apothecary, and uh, it gets robbed again by the same person. And then he's like, oh, no, I'm going to be the lethal protector now. And then Venom comes out and stops the robbery and grabs the guy and says... The whole audience join in with that bit. They all laughed. Ah! <laughs> and um, a lot of people were leaning into that line. Like, I think we got to the end and, we, and all the audience were like, is there going to be that turd in the wind sequence? And they did. All we are is turds in the wind. Turds. Wind. Dude. <laughs> Uh, but obviously, Eddie, Eddie's inaction has been cured because we see demonstrated the exact same sequence again, and he's finally helping people. Uh, was the turd in the wind line the worst line in Venom? That, that was, was the, the best, best line, line in Venom. Venom. At least it's memorable. Mm. And I, I found myself laughing at that sequence, potentially mainly because it's just absurd. If the humour had been absurd the whole way through, I think I would really have leaned into it. Uh, and then he goes, on second thoughts, ah, we are Venom, and then he bites his head off. What the hell are you? We are Venom. Oh, I have a parasite. Yeah. Name is Chen. And then walks out the door, jittering like a weird little creep. Like, that's the only thing he knows how to do. And we know that Tom Hardy can do more. No one knew who I was before I put on the symbiote. Gotham is yours now. Like a turd in the wind. Like a turd in the wind. They've got to have an end credit sequence which links it with the MCU. Come on. And uh, Eddie says uh, to uh, Anne, his girlfriend... Um, his ex-girlfriend, who, who, by the way, rescues him halfway through off, uh, after he gets the symbiote separated from him and turns up as Lady Venom, which I think must have had the comic boys. He's like, oh, oh, ma'am, ma'am, Lady Venom's turned up. I don't care. That's, we hate movies. <laughs> Wizard magazines. So Lady Venom turns up. That's probably, again, the most fun that Michelle uh, Williams gets to have in the film. Uh, Venom mutters in his head, you know, We are going to win her back, baby. And it's like, yay, your creepy, weird stalker boyfriend empowering that kind of like, that's not a good thing. Like, had Eddie just gone, you know what? I'm happy that she's with some guy. And, and Venom's like, I'm not happy. Well, you know, who gives a crap what you think? And just for that, mm, like, they're, bu they're buddies. Say. That would have shown Eddie had grown. But instead it was like, no, boys, persistence. That'll win her back. Yeah, Bob, That's a shit lesson. Uh, Bob did observe that Venom's dynamic with Peter is a bit stalkerish. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And that, that's potentially room for him to grow later on as a character. So, but there is a, a, an end credit sequence. Technically, there's two. There's, a, like, po post the animated credits. Now, that here's the thing. You get animated credits with all sort of stylish stuff going on. Then there's a mid-credit sequence. And then there's an end credit sequence if you wait to the end, unless it's Age of Ultron or a couple of the other ones where there's nothing at the end. But the mid-credit sequence... Uh, he just he told uh, Anne just before he left, uh, you know, I've got this amazing new interview lined up. And, and we were like, oh, you'll never guess who. Sequel? Tony Stark? Peter Parker? Like, how are they going to link this to the MCU? Justin Hammer? Star-Lord's human grandfather? Betty Ross? 
Someone who was on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. once? Iron Fist's butler? The guy who served Peter Parker a sandwich? Happy Hogan's landlord? Dazzler? You know, as a way of introducing the X-Men universe to the MCU. The real Mandarin? T'Challa's cat? T'Challa's cat? Uncle Ben? Deadpool? The third guy they got to play Angel? Green Lantern? Why not? The Beyonder. Stan Lee. Lockjaw. The Jackal. Oh wait, he's at a prison. Uh, the Vulture? Ah, close enough. And then he goes into Hannibal Lecter's cell, and sitting there is Woody Harrelson in an Auburn Hobbit wig, who goes, Hey, how's it going there, Eddie Brock? If I ever get out of here, and I will, it's gonna be carnage. Most of the audience still there are like, who is that? Yeah. He, he was Cletus Cassidy, who has red hair. But, you know, it's like, it's fine. For a moment there, I was thinking, Lex Luthor? Is he like an older version of Cassidy <laughs> No, wait, wrong universe. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I've got here a list of the links uh, to the MCU, and in particular, Tom Holland's Peter Parker, the Spider-Man. Ready? Okay. No, there's nothing. There was nothing. Zero. Zip. To link this to the MCU. I was led to believe... I was led to believe... Man, I was led to believe... That it took place in a kind of a pocket universe within the MCU. You know the way Daredevil does. And Jessica Jones does. And Luke Cage does. And Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. do. And Iron Fist does. This is the Lint universe at the bottom of the pocket and universe. And the Punisher does. In that... When people get together, they will say, the world's changing. Guys with hammers coming down from the sky. Aliens in New York. They'll just mention those two things. And then it's like, oh, so we're in the MCU. And nary the twain shall meet. They, they, they'll have a Lady Sif, Enchantress's sister. Did they have Nick Fury once or twice in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D.? Agent Hill once. Um... I don't watch Marvel TV. There's many, many reasons. One of them is that TV is not my medium. I'm about to talk about something that I referred to back when Venom came out as the Spider-Verse. This is in reference to the many Spider-Man spin-off films that Avi Arad had on the slate following Amazing Spider-Man 2. But prior to Into the Spider-Verse. If you remember, Venom was supposed to be a spin-off from the Andrew Garfield Spider-Man films. Several of them have been cancelled. There was going to be a Sinister Six. Now there's not. There was going to be a Silver Sable and Black Cat movie. Now there's not. There was going to be an Aunt May movie. Now there's not. There's a whole bunch of new animated films on the slate. Who knows what's happening with this thing? But I thought that um, the Spider-Verse that uh, uh, Avi Arad is still trying to kick into uh, uh, action would take place in San Francisco within the MCU, whereby they'd mention it, but Kevin Feige was not obligated to lend them Peter Parker. There must be some sort of agreement where it's like, okay, you have lent us Spider-Man, we make these Spider-Man movies. You can't go putting that into your movie until we have established that you've got a good Spider-Verse in there. like So maybe this was the test ground. And to a degree, it's almost refreshing them not... Amazing Spider-Man 2's problem was constant seeding of future films. Whereas this, apart from the Cletus Cassidy bit near the end, seemed to be very much, let's focus on just getting Venom established as a character. And to a degree, that makes this a better Venom film than Spider-Man 3, where they forced Venom in... In all honesty, that should have been the black costume saga 
at the very, very end, the way I re-edited Spider-Man 3, by the way, folks, you get that shot of Eddie Brock going, ah, and turning into Venom, and that's it. And it's like, next movie, Venom. And the, like devote a whole movie to that. Because effectively, you spend the whole movie establishing Eddie Brock and and Peter Parker and, and their rivalry. And I suppose you could also clear out the whole Harry Osborn situation, maybe with Sandman as a, uh, uh, a, a side villain. But the Peter shedding the black costume... The way I re-edited it, that's the climax. It's not about having a massive fist fight showdown with a big villain. It's about Peter getting rid of that evil black shit that's been polluting his life. Like the Babadook. <laughs> so, but, so technically, with this being very focused on Venom and not going, there's going to be a Spider-Verse! What? Sorry, I was just thinking of Peter keeping Venom in, in the, basement the basement and feeding him worms. worms. <laughs> Can I just have some SpaghettiOs? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it not going, oh, there's going to be silver and black, the new silver sable and black cat. Those are characters uh, coming soon. Like, it's, it's they starting, didn't do that, to their credit. It's starting to feel a little bit like having now achieved almost everything a set of human beings can in cinema, Marvel are now holding tryouts. Yeah. There were, however... Well, yeah, like the idea being if Deadpool's a huge... Deadpool... No, Deadpool, Deadpool was, was a huge success, and so now he probably gets to play. Yeah. <laughs> There's going to be uh, tryouts. And Venom, he's having to sing for his supper. And I can guarantee Kevin Feige sat in that room and went... No. No. <laughs> <laughs> and then the box office receipts started coming in, and Kevin thought, maybe? Another thing I thought might happen is somehow Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man turning up. And I'm going, ah, didn't expect that, did you? Venom is a spin-off to the 2014 film Amazing Spider-Man 2. He's going to be one of our Sinister Six. It would have had everyone groaning and or confused. But A, I'd prefer if Venom wasn't anything to do with the MCU, and this puts it very firmly in another universe. And B, Sony are pushing the idea of multiple Spider-Mans across multiple universes already. There is a post-credits clip. It said, some in a comic box out, in bright blue or yellow or red. Meanwhile, in another universe, and it cuts to Miles Morales standing over Peter Parker's grave. It's a clip from Into the Spider-Verse. They didn't animate it specially for Venom. It's just a bit from Into the Spider-Verse to promote it for this, you know, this holiday season. And kind of bad idea, because this... Two, three-minute sequence, which ends up with a police chasing Miles through the street and Miles dragging the unconscious form of uh, some alternate Peter Parker around on webbing attached to a, a, a moving train had more colour, more humour, more passion, more visual storytelling, more character, more how-you-do-this-right than the entirety of Venom. I left the cinema with a big grin on my face, not because of Venom, just because I saw the trailer, the second trailer for Into the Spider-Verse earlier today, and I thought, that's looking really good now. Lord and Miller, back on top form. Can't wait. Not Venom, that. It's kind of like, remember how to see Final Flight of the Osiris, the uh, Square Enix portion of the Animatrix, you had to go and see Stephen King's Dreamcatcher? If they'd had that bit at the end and you had to sit through the whole of Dreamcatcher, it would have been the little cherry on top of a turd cake. Indeed. Turd in the wind cake. I would say watching this film was like drinking black vodka, just strong and bitter and intoxicating, but it's more like drinking the water left over after you're done painting a picture. 
there's a mode of thought among producers that with all this cheerful Marvel fare knocking around, that there is a call for brooding, dark, violent, grown-up alternatives. And they seem to be confusing a call for a general absence of, which this is, filling in this particular old kind of movie. But they're ignoring the fact that Marvel and the success of their style was in itself pushback to the brooding, dark villains, or, well, let's face it, the repeated Batman that kept getting shoved down everybody's throat. Honestly, the Batman had only been dark once... Uh, when the MCU came into being. Remember, Batman Begins 05. The Dark Knight was out mm. after Iron Man. Good point, good point. It wasn't grim, brooding Batman they were uh, rebelling against. But then once the Dark Knight came out and it was like, oh, we want it dark. Then when uh, the Dark Knight Rises came out, the same year as Avengers, you can bet your ass that they were going to go light and bright. And they would have darkness in there as well, but blended in a way that allows you to get the human drama out of the situation rather than pushing so hard on the dark button. Mm. You are right though, Sharon. The MCU was more than just a pushback against Nolan's Batman. There had been a push, a hard push, especially at the beginning of the 21st century, thanks to The Matrix, and a decade of 13-year-old edgelord pandering as a bunch of children grew up into angry teenagers to make superheroes moody and tortured and not embarrassing for grown-ups to like and violent and merciless and the kind of thing that could show up in clubs rather than schoolyards. With new metal soundtrack grown up and black and wearing leather and PVC with zips and gimp masks. There's totally a gimp mask in Watchmen. Gritty and realistic with blood and murder and rape and my dead family and my dead girlfriend in the fridge. The MCU went, no, comic books. This is a versatile medium capable of appealing to more than just surly teenagers and we can incorporate that stuff as well. These were based on costumed heroes designed for children in the mid-20th century during a science boom and the Kennedy era where we felt like we could do great things. Nowadays, it's a modern mythology. There's always a place for Hades in the Pantheon, but you gotta do your Hades stories right. You're just a clown. Dressed up as a sex toy. So dark! You sure you're not from the DC Universe? Luckily, that better Deadpool 2's now dated like crazy, thanks to Aquaman and Shazam. And what this is, is uh, it is not so much uh, brooding, dark, grown-up, grown up, violent. Uh, it, it's more of a sulky, bland, posturing, but ultimately toothless uh, exercise. And while it pertains to be for grown-ups, it doesn't actually do anything mature. Like that bit at the end where he could have just said, you know, I'll, I'll let my girlfriend go and, you know, it's, it, I hope she has a good life. That's mature. Instead going, we will win her back, Eddie, that's immature. That's not owning the situation. That's selfishly trying to, to take back what you feel was taken from you. By the way, she dumped him for a really fucking good reason. Like at the beginning, like he, she, he was told, don't fuck with this multi-billionaire, you'll get fired. And I work for this company, I'll get fired. And he did, and she did get... And she was like... The way she expressed it was, this is not the first time you've done this, Eddie. You know, you you do these things, and I am left with the detritus. What it does is, while feeling like a 90s throwback, it steers clear of crossing any boundaries that might make it difficult to market to children with their PG-13 certificate. So what they're really doing is, much like Suicide Squad, they're giving us a 13-year-old's version of grown-up. 
it didn't remind me as much of Suicide Squad. It's not as incoherent as that. Now, apart from the whole, what was this symbiote in Malaysia doing in this old lady for six months? It doesn't have that structural weakness the whole way through the way that, that Suicide Squad did. It didn't have me asking questions. Well, what's this? Like, this doesn't make any sense. It's ultimately a straightforward film about how a uh, weak, frightened man receives astonishing power with vast, destructive, or protective potential. But to that end, it's nowhere near as focused or as conclusive as Marvel's only second MCU outing, The Incredible Hulk, where at the end Banner says, I may not be able to control it, but I can at least aim it. It's a, a waste of a license. It's a waste of several things, actually. And it comes at a weird time, because with Infinity War and Spider-Man on the PS4, and into the Spider-Verse right around the corner. It's a lot of Spider-Man this year. A lot of Spider-Man-related stuff. And they seem to be sort of think about him as the world that radiates out Spider-Web-like from Spider-Man himself. So, uh, you know, you might want to think about this. And with Venom, it's like, well, I don't want to think about that. It's a hole in the web. This, which purports to be dark and gritty and grown-up, but has that PG-13 certificate. So it's like, what we really want is everyone... And yet it's too bland, flavourless, tasteless, colourless to appeal to a broad audience. Rather than making it sharply niche, they softened it into kind of a cabbagey paste. It's very middling. And I was going to say it reminds me most of Ghost Rider, because the, the bit with the, the sequence of the motorbike, I was like, this is kind of like Ghost Rider, but then I remember the Ghost Rider, the motorbike is on fire, and it's crazy. And Nick Cage is like, you know, well, Nick Cage does crazy voices and crazy faces as well. But Ghost Rider is really fun, and it, it, you know, there's, there's fun in Venom, but it, there's also lots of bright colours in Ghost Rider, and it's 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 not ashamed of its comic roots. This seems to be like ashamed to involve the colour red or the colour green. Or the colour blue. Jesus. There's nothing in it. It's kind of a, a tobacco yellow for most of it. And sort of a darkish browny grey slop. Incidentally, as we said in the Ghost Rider review, Ghost Rider's kind of a remake of the Jim Carrey film The Mask. And technically, so's this. That's how mired in the 90s it is. It also reminded me of the Thomas Jane Punisher film. You've got this very early, you know, 90s retro throwback comic theme, but it had that sense of let's just get the Punisher established, which is what this is. Let's just get Venom established, give him a dude to fight against, and now now you know who Venom is. Does everyone know who Venom is? Okay. And it's like. You in the back there, do you know who Venom is? Yes, okay. we know who Venom is. You established it in 2007. You didn't need to re establish it, hit the ground running, and say, boom, 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 this is Eddie Brock. He got a symbiote in him. We know this story. Like, it's a better introduction to Venom than Spider Man 3, but it's an unnecessary introduction to Venom because of Spider Man 3. Well, there you go, then. That's their audience people who weren't around when Spider Man 3 came out. You know what? Spider-Man 3, way better film than this. Way better. Ouch. Yeah. And this doesn't really, like, it's not shit. It's just nothing. The way that The Punisher was. Mm. Even better than buying Spider-Man 3, buy The Spectacular Spider-Man, that's the TV series, Volume 4, the DVD. You should be able to pick it up for just a few bucks now. It is a bunch of episodes that cover the Black Costume Saga. And the emergence of Venom. It's everything you need, and it's really good. Spectacular Spider-Man, DVD, Season 1, Volume 4. 
But the other thing you've got to think about is that if this is, in fact, in the MCU, it is, in fact, in a pocket the way that um, uh, Iron Fist is, and somehow Kevin Feige pops that bubble and allows Venom out to play with Tom Holland's Spider-Man, then we don't get the black costume saga for Pete. I mean, we could, but it's kind of good and bad that we don't get it anyway. Because if you think about it, I, I don't want to see this version of Spider-Man, this version of Peter Parker, be an asshole. I don't want to see him disco dance. I don't want to see him with an emo black haircut over one eye. I don't want to see him hit Michelle in the face. But if he ever meets this Venom, they have to work backwards from one of the defining characteristics of the character, which is this sense of rejection and resentment. Brock resents Peter for having him fired, for being unprofessional. And Venom resents uh, Spider-Man for rejecting him and not wanting to, to, to have this black costume be part of his web-swinging career. So you've got these two characters seething with resentment for Spider-Man and Peter Parker. And that kind of defined Venom for so long that he had to work really hard to come to terms with that and move on from there. So if he does meet with Spider-Man, I mean, you could do it. But I kind of don't really even want to see it done. Well, it's a, it, the Venom creature, the symbiote, is kind of representative of, I'm not quite sure what, it's not exactly depression, it's not exactly anxiety, but it is... A dark side. A, a suppressed anger that's born of, like I said before, survival instincts, but lashes out in very inappropriate ways. And... Yeah, I'm not entirely sure that I want to see Tom Holland's no. Spider-Man go that way. Sweetest guy in the world. You ever watched him with um, at hospital visits to little kids? He always hunkers down rather than striding in and towering over them. He always gets down like sort of crouches like Spidey. And uh, he does these little flips and things just to put them at ease. He always keeps the uh, cowl off just to so that they know he's Peter Parker, definitely Spider-Man, rather than some weirdo in a spandex costume. And they always have that sort of huh? look on their face. Coming back from this film, I listened to the score uh, by Michael Giacchino for Spider-Man Homecoming. I thought, this this was such a great movie. I mean, I've, I've seen really excellent critics saying, it was just an okay movie. It, it was actually really fantastic. It was a fantastic Spider-Man movie. It was a fantastic movie. And watch Venom, if you're in any doubt. And the future of Spider-Man spin-offs, I don't know. I, I, I almost kind of want to see Black and Silver come out, just because more female-led... Uh, action movies you know Black Cat Silver Sable you could get something good out of that but uh, they've got to have a they've got to have more life than this they've got to have more pizzazz Um, and let me give you guys an alternative and it's one that you can actually pick up right now for a reduced price and this sounds like I'm hocking Squarespace I'm not getting paid anything for this I'm just telling you a recommendation of something that I picked up this week and I was like this is so well timed the comic series The Superior Spider-Man wherein uh, Dr. Otto Octavius he dies, but his brain gets put in Peter Parker's body, and Peter Parker's brain gets put in Dr. Octopus's body, and he dies, so effectively is Doc Ock in Spider-Man's body, and he decides he's going to be the best Spider-Man ever. And so you've got this villain doing Spider-Man in a cruel but very calculating fashion, and actually winning over J. Jonah Jameson and becoming popular with the city in that way, but also overstepping the mark repeatedly. 
And it's not a spoiler to say, within the first issue or so, the spectral form of Peter Parker starts arguing with him as his conscience, which at the moment, I've only read the first trade paperback, uh, Otto cannot hear, but Peter's there in the background, stopping him doing something truly terrible. And it's a really great insight into a Spider-Man villain with Peter there. And the first few books on Comixology, uh, I think they were just like one ninety-nine or two fifty each book. You could buy the first three or four for the price of a ticket to go see Venom. For the love of God, go for the books instead. And that's Venom. Pointless. Superior Spider-Man, superior. Where'd Spider-Wars go? Spider-Wars! Come out and play! Okay, that original assessment of Venom was recorded... On day of release, I went to see it the first time I was av- it was possibly available to me around about the third of October two thousand eighteen. It is now the fifth of February two thousand nineteen, and Venom made eight hundred and fifty-five million dollars. That is not chump change. It must clearly have some kind of appeal for a wide audience. Mm. I'm going to be completely honest with you. In spite of the fact that a lot of the things I want to say about it are positive, I still don't get why it made as much money as it did. There are definitely things to like about this film. Mm. I don't think to that level, for perspective, Into the Spider-Verse, which is sublime, made £347 Less than half that. Yeah. I, I wonder actually... Even though it was advertised at the end of Venom. I wonder if part of it is just that there are a lot of people who are sick of Marvel, sick of DC, sick of the feud that they perceive between the two of them, and just liked the idea of going to see something that wasn't tied to either of them. There's... Hundreds of movies released every year that aren't tied to either of them. Well, no, I mean, like, a superhero movie. It wasn't common knowledge to everyone that this was definitely not an MCU film. That's true, actually. People weren't going, I really like the look of Venom because it's not an MCU film. I hate all those MCU films. That's why things like Black Panther make north of a billion. People just hate the MCU. (laughs) They just can't stand it. They're desperate to give $855 million... To anything else that's not. The Venn diagram of uh, people who don't like either DC or Marvel, but do like superhero movies, is is like two completely separate circles. It's it's not types of people. It's elements within the story that were appealing enough to give it really great word of mouth. Mm. Because this is something that uh, the critics got slammed for. The critics slammed Venom, and then they in turn were slammed and told, we don't need you fucking critics! We're gonna go see this anyway! And it's like, guys, we're just trying to help you by saying there's plenty of movies out this year that are really worth your dollars. This one, maybe not so much. Mm. But see it, people did. And honestly, after watching it again on DVD last night, now that it's just come out, it's not completely awful. It's not completely awful. It's a lot less immature than I uh, originally stated. It's not mature, but it's also not moody and teenage and significantly, it's not we demand to be taken seriously. No, No, it's not. It doesn't fit with like, you know, angry bros. It's more kind of fuck-up 40-somethings. Yeah. Yeah, slightly bemused, young Gen Xers. 
and older millennials kicking around going, uh, what? Is there room for Venom? <laughs> I think Tom Hardy pulled it off quite well. Lyra loved it. She loved the, uh, the, the film in general, so obviously making a non-gory version of it was a really good idea. Mm. It's still a 15 in the UK, isn't it? Yes. I would say, though, it's on the light end of 15. Yeah, yeah. The, the main bits, I think, that did have me kind of wincing were the anything where somebody gets something stuck through them. Put it like this. You know that PG-13 version of Deadpool 2 that came out around late last year? Yeah. That's a lot more fucked up and extreme than this. Right. Obviously, they're both PG-13s in the States, but that's why in the UK... 15s in the UK. (laughs) But Deadpool 2 is also a 15. Yeah. The point is that what they took out wasn't enough to make the BBFC go, yeah, that's, uh, that's definitely a 12 or a 12A. To that end, it's not getting a disc release in the UK. Mm. There's no point. No. If you've got, if you're old enough to be able to get it on DVD, uh, then you can get the original version, and, and uh, so it would cost them more money than it's really worth putting out this extra version. It's available to buy on streaming, and if you folks want to hear more about Once Upon a Deadpool, check out my 25-minute quick review on the Patreon bonus feed. But it does have a fierce fan following, Venom, that is. And I think what frustrates me is that I wish there was more for those fans to be able to get out of this film. Like, I I wish that there was more of a story. You were watching it and you said there is clearly something going on here. It's just not being executed properly. What were you thinking at that point? Well, it did occur to me, actually, what was missing. But I'll, I'll get to that in a second. But when we were actually watching it, the overall feeling that I got was that there is a framework here of a really good character study of a man who goes from being relatively comfortable in his world, being highly praised for being an investigative reporter, which has a big old question mark over it for me, because the things that he gets criticised for really don't fall under the heading of being a good investigative reporter. Mm. But the way Tom Hardy sells the character initially, he kind of felt like... uh, a YouTuber who somehow got famous and is using his powers for good. That he's he's this bro-ish, but not really. Ish, because like he's, he's a not bit, brim full of toxic masculinity. No, right no, now. not really. But he just seems like a guy who's not not ineffectual, but just like he's never really had to try very hard for anything. But he's not really wealthy or privileged enough to have everything come easily for him. He's just kind of, you know, pootling along at a nice, comfortable level. At not the beginning of the film. At the beginning yeah. of the film, yeah. And then not when... having too much demanded of him. Yeah. And then when the shit hits the fan because he's actually decided to do something moral and upstanding and actually challenge the guy who he feels is in the wrong. Which, by the way, would have been way better of a story beat had he been given a reason yeah. to want to make that step. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Like if if uh, one of his friends, Melora Walters, the hobo, mm. disappeared, causing him to, to investigate want further. To investigate exactly. Further. It doesn't make sense that people are already telling him he's the best investigative reporter in the business because he clearly isn't. Anyway, that's kind of besides the, the point. But once everything's hit the fan and the bottom's fallen out of his world, you then have the opportunity to explore this guy for whom everything has previously been just nice and comfortable 
put in a situation where he's lost what he had. And Tom, the way Tom Hardy plays Eddie, Eddie. he goes through and experiences things that are, are quite clearly linked to anxiety, to depression, to uh, varying states of being torn this way and that by emotions that he's not used to dealing with. And this is, to me, what Venom kind of has the opportunity to glom onto because Eddie is feeling these incredibly strong things that he's never really had to channel before and that gives Venom food. That is the scent that attracts him in the first place. Somebody who has strong negative feelings that he doesn't know how to direct. That lattice work of this could have been a really, really engaging and interesting story was there. It was more than a little frustrating that every time I thought, oh, they're going to go in this direction with it, they just went, here's some hitting. Okay, moving on. Ah, this is not predictable. <laughs> but it, but the, the, here's the thing, though. I was, I was thinking to myself... So you didn't what, predict that there'd be a pointless what? fight here. You thought there was going to be some character development. Nah, nah. More fool you. More fool you, exactly. But... Looking at how the film progresses, it honestly looks like... You were saying, actually, while we were watching it, it looks like they've taken great big slices out of it. Yeah. And you were speculating that it could have been that these were the more gory or over-the-top uh, elements that they could have removed. Oh, you goddamn know they took gory bits out. However, I will tell you what I think is missing from all of this, and that's Spider-Man. <laughs> There were big chunks of this story that Spider-Man would have fit quite neatly into in terms of actually opposing Eddie and trying to stop him getting into, you know, because when he's trying to break into the labs and stuff like that, it's it's criminal behaviour. This is the stuff that in a New York that we know Spider-Man is in. But this is San Francisco, so he's not. Oh, good point. But it, it just it just felt like you've, somebody had come in with a pair of scissors and just gone, oh, no, there's a bit of Spider-Man there. We'll have that and we'll have that and that's coming out. Technically, Miles could have helped uh, Eddie run away from the lab, yeah. thrown a bagel at a guy and it would have gone bagel. It would have been great. Venom, I am so used to him being a fundamental part of Spider-Man's world yeah. that that was the bit that... It felt On like a colossal absence, it felt like kind was, of empty. Was missing, yeah. I, I read the uh, in between after watching this film. I read the Venom limited series from the nineties that this was based on, and it's shallow rubbish. Uh, and the film was better than it. Mm. Uh, but again, both of them felt the lack of Spider-Man. It, it felt like, well, we think that this character can stand on his own. Clearly, he can to the tune of eight hundred and fifty-five million. So clearly, for a lot Absolutely. of people, he's a great enough character. And honestly, I'm not going to quibble with the fact that Venom, the actual, like, the alien symbiote talking like this. And, you know, his look, his voice, his demeanor, just the, 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 the consistency of that character, uh, which is sort of a tar-like consistency, is good. It's really, like, I, I like him, and I would like to see this Venom in other stuff. mm yeah, I the the bit that I really loved and did not expect to was the whole oh, on my planet I'm something of a loser. Yes, <laughs> that's what I like because that's the opposite of we demand to be taken seriously. Yes, it is. Because here's the thing: Venom is very like Spawn. 
Yeah. And Spawn is coming, folks. I know. <laughs> You're not getting away from that My one. My lord. Venom is going to look like Into the Spider-Verse relative to the shit he show is. that Spawn is going to be. Because Spawn is, is going to demand to be taken seriously. Oh, he so is, yeah. But I liked the fact that Venom had a sense of humour. I liked the fact that they put Tom Hardy in and he is a great actor. And I it's a weird black sense of humour. Yeah. I do think they could have given him more to work with. I definitely think they could have given Michelle Williams more to work with. Jesus Christ. She's a great actress she's got a fantastic work ethic and she puts herself across so well don't give her pointless shallow parts where she has you know eight lines and six of them are unnecessary the pacing is another major issue because mm. it takes way too long for uh, eddie to get the symbiote in him when he's got the symbiote in him it's it takes a long time for him to come to terms with the fact that it's he's not crazy, it's not just a, 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 a something that's gone wrong with his brain, mm-hmm. it's definitely Venom. And again, this is sort of esta- re-establishing with an audience who is already very familiar with the character from Spider-Man 3, mm. what this is. Yeah. And then it's like, right, so I've got a Venom in me. Fight, motorcycle sequence, acceptance of Venom, and then they rush as fast as they can yeah. to the end uh, end game. Mm. There was just there was not enough concentration of Eddie Venom scenes. Yeah, if they'd gotten Venom into Eddie much quicker, mm. it feels like the the you know rearranging the story with the available elements that they had. It would have made more sense if Riot had been from the lab mm. and Venom had been the one that was trapped halfway around the world in Malaysia, trying to get back to his tribe of symbiotes. Mm. And then as he gets there, he learns about humans along the way. So when he finally hits Eddie, he's a lot more idiosyncratic than the other symbiotes. It takes him a long time. Absolutely. That's a story. Yeah, yeah. And he chooses Eddie because Eddie has particular qualities rather than him just grabbing the nearest available human. Yeah. But I mean, like, he has... A real grasp of the English language from being in a canister. It doesn't make any sense. Well, it doesn't have to make sense. It's a superhero movie. You can allow a degree of this happens just because. In the original Spider-Man comic, the symbiote, when it comes out from... It, it starts off as the Secret Wars, like Black Goop. And um, it's it's just raw, you know, rage and emotion. And it doesn't have its own focused thoughts it needs to spend time with peter Mm. to learn to people yeah and it it gloms on to eddie and pretty much is a person already Mm. because they're like well it it is venom and it it, that just seems to come from the point of view of someone who's like we just got to get to venom quickly so on the one hand it's taking forever to get there on the other when you get there Mm. it's already done yeah it, it, it doesn't almost, have all of those cogs and wheels of developing character. It does almost feel to me like this package that Sony has made is like... It's like Justice League. It took forever to get to Justice League, and when we were there, Unite the Six, we have, it's done. Bye. Bye, cheers. Mm. But the, it does feel like Sony has made a package of Venom scenes... And if the MCU at any point wanted to, you know, purchase the package and cut it up and intersect it with a Spider-Man movie, they could do that. You know, just let us steer it in this direction or the other. Oh, Feige, you could have had it for a tenner. You could have had both. (laughs) 
But, you know, honestly, if this is what it takes to get people to, sh- to show the world that they love Venom and they want more Venom, and it isn't just, you know, comic book nerds going, we're going to have a Venom movie, and, and their finger not being on the pulse. Yeah. Has, has, that, has that made more than the Batman and Superman movie? Very, very close. Uh, Venom made 855, Batman v Superman made 873, but the multiplier is completely different. 116 million for Venom, 250 million plus for Batman v Superman, plus. There are hidden costs there. Yeah. (laughs) So, essentially, Venom, this character that lots of people didn't know about and isn't connected to any major superhero doesn't appear in the movie. No, it's the other way around. It's because everyone knows who Superman is that Batman v Superman felt wrong. And people were like, we don't want to see this Superman. I gotcha. So they're like, we have no idea who Venom is. Venom could be anything. Venom could be that dog. Oh, look, he is. They know who Venom is. Everyone and his dog went to see Spider-Man 3. How many times? (laughs) This was an introduction. Someone you already know. It was, I mean, technically, kind of like the Amazing Spider-Man. They were like, "Oh, you'll never get this. You'll never believe this." But this boy is going to get bitten by a spider, and he'll develop spider powers. But not choice, moral obligation. Okay, but is it fair to say? that the movie-going public had a generally less fixed idea in their heads of what Venom was supposed to be. Honestly, this is pretty accurate to what Venom is supposed to be. So uh, I, I think what it really comes down to is whether people had a fixed idea in their heads or not, this delivered the Venom. Okay. In a way that Zack Snyder going, check this out. Moody Doctor Manhattan Superman made everyone go. Yeah, we've nah. seen that, Zach. <laughs> you did it once already. It was all right then, but nah. And he had his dong out, um, <laughs> and it was blue. But there was a subtle shift in Eddie's worldview in the film. At the beginning, he was scared, and when I was watching it with you guys, I was like, right, he's scared, but he's scared of taking on a man doing an armed hold-up. He's perfectly permitted to be scared of that. Like, any human being would come back out and, and confront the guy, only to be shot in the chest. Or the face, if you're Shazam. It's not something you should expect of the average person, and you know, unless... Uh, He's got superpowers, and at the end, he has superpowers, and he overreacts immensely. Uh, But you pointed out that... Well, yeah, I mean, that that scene is quite an interesting one, because, no, you wouldn't expect the average person to be a hero in those circumstances. And, in fact, most sort of police advice would be, don't be the hero in those circumstances. Don't race in to take on somebody with a gun when you're unarmed, because all you will achieve is getting yourself shot. But... It's the fact that Eddie then behaves as if nothing's happened. He is ashamed of the fact that he didn't do anything. And instead of rushing up to the the lady in the store, who is clearly a friend of his and somebody he knows very well, and asking her if she's okay and offering to call the police and, and doing anything supportive, he just comes up, head down, puts his purchases on the counter and 
just acts as though nothing's happened. He leaves with embarrassment. They yeah. both acknowledge that it happened, but mm. it's like, yeah, I couldn't really do anything about that. Yeah, and that's that's. But she's also fine. ashamed. She's ashamed that she's witnessed. She's he's ashamed. born witness to her being made to incredibly vulnerable. Absolutely, and she's ashamed of the fact that this is something that happens regularly, and she hasn't been able to do anything about mm. it. And there's there's a whole lot of of reactions to being treated poorly in that scene that all kind of blend in and and create a situation which is extremely uncomfortable. But it does mean that the end scene of the movie gets away with being ridiculous and you kind of like it because it resolves that tension. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And there's also, you pointed out that at the beginning, as soon as Eddie started uh, being pushed around by Venom, that what was forming was a codependent relationship. Yeah. And I think you were worried it was going to become an abusive relationship that was passed off as non-abusive the way that Suicide Squad did. This is... To me, quite a far cry from Suicide Squad, even if it does at the end have, keep chasing her, Eddie, we're we're not going to give up. And even Stan the Man Lee tells them, don't give up either of you two, you better keep stalking that girl. Yeah, there's there's a very different dynamic as well between Venom and Eddie and Joker Joker and Harley. Harley, That non-Joker and and actually pretty damn great Harley. But the the point with uh, Venom and Eddie is that, that... it is a codependent relationship, almost literally. They are symbiotic with one another. They can't get by without each other's support. But that sometimes has negative effects. But they, it's, it's the way they kind of work towards meeting each other in the middle. Eddie starts to stand up to Venom and Venom starts to appreciate Eddie a little bit more. And they kind of, they, they start to work around each other. It's dysfunctional. And Venom certainly starts off being very abusive. And Eddie is like, you know, his self-confidence is on the floor at that point anyway. But it's it's the way they kind of, they do actually enhance each other and, and buoy each other up in the end. Mm. Where is he? I don't know. And you know what? Even if I did, I wouldn't tell you anyway. I don't trust you. And you're insane. That hurts. Ari. Long journal entry about that tonight. You're being dumb, Brock. I'm not insane. What's insane is the way humans choose to live today. Think about it. All we do is take, take, take. It can't go on. We've brought the planet to the brink of extinction. We're parasites. You're a good example. Think about it. All you do is take. You took my symbiote. You take pot shots at a great man trying to get something done. Who? Didn't you take from the person you love the most, who trusted you the most? That's insane. What I've initiated is a whole new world, a new species. Man and symbiote combined. Let me tell you something, buddy. All right, just man, man, because I have spent a significant amount of time all right, with one of these creatures up my ass. It's not a lot of fun. And then I find out all along that they're killing you. This is the last time I'm asking you. Where is my symbiote? I have no idea. Where is he? Oh, yeah. Where's Venom? That is the ugliest looking thing I have ever seen. You know, Brock, I have no use for you. Trees, come and clean up your mess. Whoa, he has one up his ass. Your friends, 
The others, I apologize. I tried to keep them alive. There are more of us. Millions more. They will follow wherever I lead. Where we lead? Yes, we. But first, we must retrieve them. I can take care of that. Why again? I've seen it twice now, and I honestly can't recall why Riot needs to get hold of Venom. Another weakness is the terrible use of the villain. Riot is nothing, mm. and Drake amounted to nothing. He, like they, they laid down this premise for this guy who is a, a firm believer in the ends justifying the means, mm. yeah, which is a, a, a good villain trait, and he seems not hugely angry or moustache twirling mm. so much. Like, he's not evil. Mm. He, he's just sort of very determined to get that done, which is a, a, a good premise. And then he gets a symbiote in him and it just kind of goes out the window. But here's the thing. Because they haven't... Because the Riot was not characterised in any way, mm. the the relationship between Eddie and Venom and the the clash of their personalities is what makes that entertaining. The fact that... You have no idea what Riot's ideology is. <clears throat> so seeing it be utilised by Drake or clashing with Drake or yeah. trying to work around Drake and then being squashed or being encouraged or taking him over and, sh and changing his ide ideology and using him for Riot's purposes, that you could have done any or all of that with that particular interaction. Mm. But you don't. It's just he's he's just Drake, but louder and with more teeth. I'm gonna get in a rocket ship and go straight to Venom World, and then come back with more symbiotes and take over the world. But why? We, again, we never find out why yeah. Riot particularly wants to do that. What what is there to be gained <laughs> from taking over the Earth? To be quite honest, you already know you can't survive in its environment. Yeah. Look at War of the Worlds. Okay, if the Martians had had a scout team that had come down to Earth. And then on contact with, with whatever viruses were knocking around, had just keeled over and died. And somebody had managed to get a message back saying, you know what, don't come here, germ's too bad. Let's look for somewhere else, boys. This isn't going to work. Would have been good to hear Riot go into his motivations. But on that front, he was kind of a quiet Riot. I'm so sorry. We're picking over the bones of the carcass now, but it's food for the future because these are elements that can be tweaked and strengthened and worked on mm. for future venoms. Uh, Carnage is going to be really difficult because it's going to be a PG-13 again so that they can replicate the success. He's a mass murderer. He was a mass murderer when it was not going to be a PG-13. And they were like, oh, it's going to be Carnage. He like... He's writing in his own blood because he's bitten the end of his finger, and they minimise that for the PG-13 uh, version, but that's definitely there. Mm. Now, Riot... Who's got shit you've never even heard of. ...can turn his arms into scythes and pointy things and stab you in a PG-13 way, and if you're Venom, you know. Like, it, it led to what was effectively an angry soup fight between some black soup and charcoal grey soup. Mm. I did notice, actually, Venom bites off a lot of heads just off screen. Yeah, but Carnage, his power is to be red and to turn his hands into knives and stabbing weapons. Mm. In a PG-13, where he will just stab people... Slightly off screen, or out of shot, or out of focus, and in a generally minimised way. 
It's the same thing, mm. only you can't make the most of the fact that he's a serial killer, and you can't make him really all that scary. I mean, you could. with Like, they did so, sort of do that with the Joker, but they had to really minimise the actual fleshy violence. Here's what should have happened. Uh, that's Heath Ledger's Joker, that is. Drake should have been uh, infested with carnage, not riot, mm-hmm. because Drake is out for order. Yeah. Supreme order at no chaos. matter what cost. And carnage is chaos. So it would have been a, a, an actual war between the two of them. Absolutely. Plus the fact then you get a fight between a beastie that's black mm. and a beastie that's red, which is at least more visually interesting. Yeah. And then the the carnage symbiote gets away and eventually gets to Cletus Cassidy. So it's like, yeah. oh shit, now it's going to be someone who Because now it's actually with someone who will use him and let him this do is what be he far wants worse. to do. But yeah. again, not really for a PG-13. You don't have serial killers as your villains in PG-13s. Not generally. Not, not successful ones that are really uh-huh. that know their audience. That's going to be really fucking tricky. I'm racking my brains. There aren't many. I can't think of any. The Prestige? <laughs> was that a PG-13? No, that wasn't a PG-13, was it? That was Who's the serial killer in The Prestige? That's a habitual suicide. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I think what this really establishes is that Venom is a power player, uh, you know, of, along the likes of Deadpool, mm-hmm. as in people now really want to see him in more stuff. Yeah. So, like Deadpool, they can put him in better things. Mm. Yeah. Well, technically, Deadpool was perfectly suited to his first film. A little bit more uneasily suited to his second film in various cuts of it. And Christ knows what's going to happen in the MCU. But he firmly established who he is. So I'm interested to see what will happen if he gets incorporated into the MCU. I'm very interested in seeing what happens if this Venom meets our Peter. And as I said, I like the fact that Peter won't have to necessarily go through the whole black suit thing. Mm. Because he won't have to be an asshole. Yeah. It, it's actually really easy to do as well. Eddie finds that he's not satisfied with any of the work that's available for him in San Francisco and ends up with a job on the Daily Bugle. Daily Bugle. Yeah. You could also introduce JJ for that one. Yeah. Make it a more traditional Spider-Man story. I'm also really interested in... I can, I can put money right now on him. For Spider-Verse 2, there'll be a Venom. Because... He'll be established. The PG-13 crowd will know who he is. And I would have imagined more of a big, cuddly, berserker Venom rather than the threatening Venom. Mm. He won't be so much villainous as like a, a big, over-enthusiastic, slightly too bitey dog. Yes. Yeah, I could see that working, actually. It, not that he's ineffectual, exactly, but a little bit of a constantly threatens to bite off heads, but never actually does. Yeah. I mean, that, that could really work, especially with, with the, the, the comedy that they made uh, Spider-Ham work with, mm. you know. And also, I really want to see him get the white symbol from Parker. Like, that, that version of Venom, I know it's only a superficial thing and it's not going to make any difference to the actual film itself. But just symbolically, we've not actually seen that up, up on screen. Just the big white spider. Mm. Well, it's, it, again, it's visually a little bit more interesting. And the, the white marble veins that they've got all over him in this, mm-hmm. in this one, I could see there being sort of a shot of all of that kind of flowing into the middle of his chest yeah. to form the spider. Also, if they kind of edge him towards a little bit more looking like a giant killer whale, which mm. is what he always looked like, and, and that's intimidating, but also it's got a great visual style to it. Just They can blend it with what they've uh, established already. Mm. Oh, and one last thing. 
Next time you're watching Venom at home, at the exact moment that Venom and Eddie get cornered by armed guards in the lobby of that hotel, kill the sound and put on the Cuban Pete song from The Mask. It syncs up alarmingly well. They call me Cuban Pete. I'm the king of a rumba beat. When I play the maracas, I go chick chicky boom, chick chicky boom. Yes, sir, I'm Cuban Pete. I'm the craze of my naked street. When I start to dance, everything goes chick chicky boom, chick chicky boom. One thing that is worth considering, and I hadn't thought about this either the first time I saw the film or the second time when we reassessed, and that's Venom working in an ensemble, because they nailed the character in this film. Clearly, he's very appealing to a lot of people, and they like the dynamic, and while I said it's not Edgar Wright funny, it's funny enough, and it's engaging enough, and there's some intimacy there, and almost sweetness, which is probably why the Venom shipping crowd adored it quite so much. It's kind of a gay romance. But put him in an ensemble piece, a Spider-Verse and Avengers, and we're not seeing it from Eddie's point of view. Those kind of films aren't from one person's point of view. So suddenly you don't really get Venom's internal voice, not in the same way, because other people wouldn't be able to hear it. And you can make it that Venom's speaking and we can hear what he's saying, but it's almost like the laugh track from a sitcom. (laughs) Is everyone going to stand back in these fast-talking Marvel movies and just let Venom talk to Eddie during conversation scenes? We don't get that internal life in an ensemble piece, not in the same way. So that's a serious challenge moving forwards. You can do it but it takes a real vision to get that one right. And it was tough enough getting it sort of kind of right in a solo origin film. But that sort of kind of right remains the best thing about Venom, which is the Venom character. If they achieved nothing else, it was delivering him, them, us, we, collectively to the world. And speaking of collectives, you guys collectively keep us going every week via Patreon. And I think it's only fair that Venom give a shout out to our $15 patrons. So thank you to Joel Robinson, Benjamin Biddle, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, Joe Gesica, Greg Downing, Demi Wazinski, Christopher Wolf, Kat Esman, Cassandra Newman, Timothy Green, Matthew A. Siebert. Joseph Gluck, Kevin Otero, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ward, Duran Barnett, Tom Pinker, Finn Barnacle, Jameis Enright, Mark Lush, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Dutchler, and Lorraine Chisholm. We are all exceedingly grateful. And that is all from us this week. We will see you next week for Avengers Endgame. I have been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's Out. Mississippi putting it down. I'm the hottest round. I told y'all mother, y'all can stop me now. 
Listen to me now. I'm lasting 20 rounds. And if you want me, come on, get me now. Is you with me now? Let's big it, big it, bounce. I know you did the way I shoot my style. Holla, holla. People sing around. Now people gather around. Now people jump around. Get your feet on. 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 Get your foot down, get your foot down. 